Right. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Infusion Church. If we could find our seats this morning, I would appreciate it. It's good to see all of you here this morning. I'm, I'm glad you're here. We're moving along in uh, lessons in the wilderness, Exodus. We're in Exodus chapter 16 uh, today. I'll be reading verses 2 through 15 and 31 through 35. Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 through 15 and 31 through 35. I'll be reading out of the ESV. and It's going to be up here on the screen behind me as well if you want to follow along. Beginning verse 2. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, And in the morning, bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Verse 9, then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, The glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. Skip to verses 31 through 35. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations, so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Would you pray with me this morning? Almighty God, we worship you today. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for who you are and all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ, Lord. 
that we may be reconciled to you, Father. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace that's been poured out toward us, God, even though we don't deserve it. We thank you for the scriptures that you have given to us, Father, so that we may learn about you and learn about your plan of redemption and salvation. I pray this morning, Father, that you would teach us through your word. Lord, open our blind eyes, open our deaf ears, open our minds, open our hearts. God, we want to know more of who you are so that we may grow in the grace and the knowledge of you, Father. I pray that you would be with every one of us as we hear this morning. Holy Spirit, come, we pray. Guide us into the truth. We need you to direct us, Father. Help me this morning, God, to be faithful, to be obedient to you as you guide me, Father. I thank you that you're so gracious and merciful to us, Lord. Ultimately, Father, we want you to be glorified and the body of Christ to be edified this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is going to be somewhat of a part three kind of continuation of the last couple of weeks. We've been talking about the Israelites' experience in the wilderness, and specifically last week and this week, talking about the hardship or the testing of that wilderness time. As you look at, at the book of, book of Exodus, chapters 1 through 12 and kind of partway into 13 are all about the process of the Lord delivering the Israelites out of their bondage to the Egyptians. And then Exodus 13 through 18 is all about the process of the Lord walking alongside his people as their companion, teaching them how to live in this newfound freedom. Imagine after 400 plus years of slavery, the Israelites, they're free now. But the only way that they know how to live is, is as slaves. And we see this right away in their response to the wilderness experience. Right away, who's going to protect us? Who's going to give us water? Who's going to feed us? Someone, please, tell us what to do. Tell us where to go. I mean, can you imagine all that time as a slave? That lifestyle, that slave mentality would be all that you know. And there wouldn't even have been a generation alive among them that would remember what it was like to be a free, sovereign nation let alone free individual people. If we look back at Exodus 3, we'll see that the Israelites were, we'll see what they were promised before they were delivered from slavery in Egypt. And God's talking to Moses before Moses goes into Egypt to lead them out of bondage. And he says this in Exodus 3, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, he says. Now imagine the Egyptians in that place. They're probably expecting to be brought out of Egypt and straight to paradise, right into the promised land, right? All expenses paid, everything taken care of, all of it planned ahead of time. And then they find themselves in the desert, in the wilderness. What the heck? What the heck are we doing hanging out in the desert? What about the land? Where's the milk and the honey? 
What about that land? Well, what we learn is that God's working something out in them. They're free now, legally, from bondage, but they don't know how to live like they're free. And so they're out of Egypt now, but now it's time to get the Egypt out of them. Right? So God's going to put them through this wilderness training in order to prepare them for the promised land that awaits them. And so today we want to look at some of that process that God's walking them through and preparing them. And the process begins with the Israelites grumbling. Verse 2, the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You know, as I read this, I thought, well, at least they're united about something, right? (laughs) It it takes a lot to get two million people to agree on something. But they were in unison right here, and they're grumbling, and their frustration that they poured out toward Moses and Aaron. And I want to observe a couple of things that we can learn from their grumbling. It exposes them, first of all, They confuse their wants with their needs. And as I looked at this, I realized the Israelites most likely weren't starving here. This is why I say that. Because if you look forward into the next chapter, we're in chapter 16 right now. If you look into chapter 17, right in the beginning of chapter 17, they're complaining that they don't have enough water for their cattle. They have all of this livestock that they brought with them from Egypt. They could have been drinking milk, They could have had cheese. They they could have eaten the meat from the livestock that they brought with them. And Psalm 78 talks about this a little bit and I think kind of exposes them. And it's speaking of the Israelites. It says, they tested God in their heart, demanding the food they craved. Craving something's a little bit different than starving, isn't it? And so they had confused what they needed with what they wanted. I think for us, that's oftentimes the source of our our discontent as well. When I think that what I want is what I need. God, if you would just just give me this, God, then I could really serve you. Have you ever thought like that? God, if you would just... I don't believe you. God, if you would just give me a little more money. God, if you just give me a better job, maybe a better family experience, better friends, a better house, God. Tell you what, God, if I had that, whatever that is, then I could really serve you. I would really lay my life down for you then, Lord. You know, I've said that, at least some of those things I've said. And I've noticed that my tendency is to lose sight of the many blessings that God has already provided for me, and I tend to focus in like a laser beam on the thing that I don't have, but that I want badly. And then I grumble at God, because I don't have it. One author says it like this, often the source of our discontent is thinking that our greeds are really our needs. And that's so true. So in this case, not only have the Israelites confused their wants and their needs, but also their discontent causes them to exaggerate the situation. Their complaints made the situation sound worse than it actually was. We're out here with with nothing to eat. Meanwhile, shutting up the cattle in the background, right? 
We're going to die. Moses, you, you brought us here, Moses. You brought us here to kill us. As if he's some homicidal, genocidal maniac who wants to wipe out a whole nation. And they forget that Moses has laid down his life to lead them. I mean, what, what kind of person really volunteers to lead two million people through the desert? Right? Moses, Moses has left a, a, his former comfortable life to come back to Egypt where they wanted his life in Egypt. He came back there to help guide them out of that bondage. And here they are blaming him for the situation. Not only are they making the situation sound worse than it really is, but they begin to look back at the former experience in Egypt with these rose-colored glasses on, right? Oh, it wasn't, it wasn't so bad in Egypt. In fact, it was nice there. We had all the food that we wanted, well taken care of. Slavery wasn't so bad, was it? I tell you what, when they were in Egypt, they weren't saying that. Here's what's happening when they were in Egypt that they have so quickly forgotten about. Exodus 3 recounts the reason that the Lord came to deliver them. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. When they were in Egypt, they're crying out, God, help us, deliver us from this place. It wasn't so nice then when they were actually there. How quickly they've forgotten all that God has done for them and all that he has delivered them from. It was God who set up Joseph in Egypt hundreds and hundreds of of years prior so that Jacob and his family would survive the famine. And it was God who sustained their generations while Pharaoh was killing their babies. It was God who preserved Moses so that he could come back to Egypt to lead them out of that bondage. It was God who led them across the Red Sea and defeated the Egyptian army. It was God who led them to the very place that they were right there in the wilderness. It was all part of God's plan for their salvation. All part of the plan to get them out of bondage and into that promised land. I think there's a lesson for us here as well in how quickly we can forget all that God has done for us. You know, recently... I've been, I've been so discontented with some areas of my life. And I've, I've, I've grumbled at God a bit in the midst of that. God, why do you have me here, God? What, don't you know what you're doing, God? You know what, God? I, I have a few suggestions for you so that you can get this right. Here's what, I, and I tell you what, here's what I need in this situation, God. Here's how you get me out of here. And I look around and the grass seems greener everywhere else. Anyone relate to thinking that way? And so the confusion of wants and, and needs and the discontented exaggeration shows up. And it shows us it's much easier to get them out of Egypt than it is to get the Egypt out of them. So God's guiding them through this process of teaching them how to live in their newfound freedom. And that leads us to the reason that the Israelites were tested. So why did, why did God test them 
in the wilderness. It's helpful for us here to look at Deuteronomy 8 to understand our text. Really, if you read Deuteronomy, it helps you understand Exodus and what's happening in Exodus. Because in Deuteronomy, Moses is looking back on their experience in the wilderness. And he's reminding the Israelites of all the lessons that they learned during that time. And so we get to see Moses point out why God tested them. And so we're going to jump back and forth here between Exodus 16 and Deuteronomy 8. And Deuteronomy 8 tells us that he tested them, first of all, in order to know their heart. Deuteronomy 8, 2 says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Just like them, wilderness times always, always expose what's in our heart. But you know, God, God wasn't exposing their hearts for himself. He knew what was in their hearts. He knew why they were grumbling. He was exposing it so that they would see what was in their heart. Here's why, I think. Because slavery had become their identity. And we see it as we read our text and we look at it. Their hearts long to go back to Egypt. We want to go back from where we came, and what do they do? They start grumbling at Moses and Aaron out of the abundance of their heart. The mouth speaks, right? And they weren't holding back and expressing their hearts to Moses and to Aaron. You brought us here to kill us. It's important, I think, to reflect here on this, the sin of complaining. We, we typically take out that frustration on other people, especially those close to us just like the Israelites, right? Moses, this is your fault. You did this. But you know what? Usually that animosity is, is really not toward them, just like theirs was not toward, toward Moses. It's really toward God. We find fault in God's plan or, or God's provision or God's way of testing and teaching us. And Moses calls him out for it in our text. In verse 8, he says, The Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. You got problems, all right, but they're not with me. You're, you're grumbling at the wrong guy. Your problem is with God. God delivered them, and now they're saying they want to go back to Egypt. They've got an issue with the way that God is working out his plan of salvation for them. It's as if they're saying, God, we wish we had never been delivered. They're rebelling against God's plan to carry out his covenant promise in them. And God's covenant promise has always been about identity. And right now their identity is all messed up. God reminds them many times of their God-given identity to include when Moses first came to them in their Egyptian captivity. Check this out in Exodus chapter 6. God's speaking to the Israelites. And he says, I will take you to be my people. And I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out. From under the burdens of the Egyptians, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. It's a reminder to them of the covenant promise that God made to Abraham many, many years before. And he's telling them, leave the slavery identity 
Who you are is determined by me, by God Almighty, not the situation that you find yourself in at the moment. God has been showing them as he delivers them from captivity, as he, as he parts the Red Sea, as he destroys the Egyptian army, as he makes the bitter water sweet like we talked about last week, and as he feeds them with bread and quail from heaven. In the wilderness, he's saying, this is who I am. I am God Almighty. I'm your God. The most powerful rulers will bow down before me like Pharaoh. The seas will obey me. The greatest armies of the earth are no match for me. And he's saying, this is what I've done for you. I'll set you free from bondage. I'll provide for your needs and lead you. Who you are is determined by who I am and what I have done for you. Remember, it's, it's helpful to think that the big question throughout Exodus and really throughout life, for that matter, is always, who will you serve? Who will you serve? And God wants his people to serve him alone. He says, I will be your God, and you will be my people. But now they're saying, we'd rather go back to Egypt and have Pharaoh take care of us. So in a time of testing, what's in their heart really comes out. In their grumbling. And that, you know, that grumbling is, is just a symptom that exposes a deeper issue. The real issue isn't the grumbling, it's what's going on in their heart. And that is that they don't fully trust God. They desire comfort or security. God, I, I want you, but I also need to be made comfortable, or I also need to feel secure, and then I'll trust you, God. So just give me this with you, and then I'll be good, God. That's idolatry. God, I want you plus something else, and then I'll be satisfied. I believe that our response in the wilderness oftentimes exposes our hearts as well. And it's good to have our hearts exposed. Because, you know, many times we don't know what's in our hearts. I tell you what, the words, the words that come out of our mouths are oftentimes an indication of what's in our heart, just like they were with them. And a complaining spirit oftentimes indicates a problem in our heart. You know, recently, my heart has been exposed as our family has kind of, we spent a little time in the wilderness lately. And I've seen in that time that, that I place a high value on comfort and security. And I, and I get angry with God when he doesn't give me those things that make me feel comfortable and secure. You know, God knew what was in my heart. But he had to test me in the wilderness in order to expose it so that I could see the idolatry for what it was and repent. You know, Julia and I have been talking about this a little bit lately, but God's been teaching us to cherish the wilderness training. Cherish the wilderness training. That might sound like craziness. But as you go through that experience and God teaches you in it, you realize that he is exposing your heart and he's working on something in you. And the, the words of James have resonated, I think, with us more than they ever have before. James 1, 2, and 4, and then verse 12, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Something comes out of it. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. 
For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I'm not saying that that's easy or that we've arrived yet and we've got it all figured out. It's still painful to be in the wilderness. But here's what we're learning. It's in the wilderness that the things that we know up here and the things that we know that are in Scripture, when you're in the wilderness, those things become real to us and they make a connection from knowing them. They make a connection to our heart. And the principles that we know get worked out and they get clarified for us in real life training. You grow in the truth that you know as it gets worked out and applied into your life. Wilderness experience has brought, me more, has brought me more clarity about who God is and what he's done and my identity in him more than any other experience in life. And it has reinforced my constant need for him to guide me through the wilderness process, knowing that it's good for me and learning to cherish the process. So God tested the Israelites in order to know their hearts, but also to discipline them. That sounds like a fun one, right? Deuteronomy 8, 5, and 6 says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. The whole wilderness experience is a loving act of discipline and instruction from God the Father to his people. Why is it good news that God would discipline them? Because God's treating them as his children. And that's huge. Good parents don't discipline their children just for fun, right? Good parents discipline because they love their children. And they want to shepherd their hearts in the right way and care for them. And Matt touched on this a little bit last week. It's important that we learn from God's tests so we don't have to repeat them. Parents don't want their children to do the same foolish things over and over. There's consequences to that. And so they lovingly correct them in order to steer them in the right direction. Proverbs 3 tells us, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father, the son in whom he delights. He delights in you. All of us are imperfect, and we all will need discipline at times. You know, discipline's not always enjoyable, but you know what? When you read a scripture like that, God delights. We know that we have a Father who loves us enough to discipline us and to graciously direct our hearts toward obedience to His commands. So if God's disciplining you, you can rejoice. Because it means you're a true child of God. Notice in the end of verse 6 in Deuteronomy, it says, God disciplines you. Why? So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord by walking in his way and fearing him. The object is to teach their hearts to desire to obey. And to find joy in obeying the Father who delights in them. And then through obedience, to teach them to trust God. Deuteronomy 8.3 says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, 
but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Interestingly, Jesus quoted that same text when he was in the wilderness being tested and when he was without food for days. And Jesus is making the point and Moses is making the same point that manna was indeed food to sustain them physically, but it was meant to teach them a spiritual lesson that God is the source of all life. God purposely led them to a place where there was no food. And then by the word of his mouth, he provided manna and quail for them. It's not just the food that they needed, but they needed God to provide it for them. If you look in Genesis 1, the whole creation story, with God's words, he created the earth and all things in it. He just spoke and things came into existence. And in the wilderness, God said, let there be manna and quail. And there was manna and quail. You see, it wasn't really the bread or the birds that kept the Israelites alive in the wilderness. It was the word of God. It was God's words. He wanted them to see that they they need more than food and water for survival. Those are just temporary things. He he, He wanted to show them that he was their ultimate provider for everything. And if they were going to survive in the wilderness, it would require faith in the promises of the one who led them to the wilderness. And they would have to trust God. And they'd have to take him at his word. That he would do what he said he was going to do. And be confident in that. And be satisfied in it. God doesn't always give us what we want or what we expect. But he always gives us what we need. And bread from heaven, you'll see, is going to become a a theme throughout Scripture that not only refers to the manna in, in this specific story, but it points us to our need for the ultimate provision of eternal sustenance, the bread of life, Jesus Christ himself. We're going to talk about that a little bit more later. Why does God tell them, trust him for our daily bread? You know, part of the Lord's prayer is give us this day our daily bread. When Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. He said, pray this. Give us this day our daily bread. Why does God tell us, trust him for our daily bread? Maxie Dunham in his commentary on Exodus says, he does it for our sakes that we may know the peace and strength that come from continual dependence upon him. The joyful life that is ours when we trust him and we see the truth of our trusting. He goes on to say, the happiest people I know are not people who don't have any needs, but people who experience the meeting of their needs by God. That's good. God tests the Israelites because he he wants to know their heart more so. He wants to expose their hearts to them. He tests them to discipline them. He tests them to teach them to trust. And through all of that, to show them that he is God. Verse 12 of our text today in Exodus says, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, at twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. And then... You shall know that I am the Lord your God. You'd think by now the Israelites would know that he was the Lord your God, right? But some of us learn the hard way and some of us learn slow. After all that God has done up to this point, plagues in Egypt, parting the Red Sea, destruction of Pharaoh's army, right? But God, here's what I love. God shows in his amazing grace the difference between his response to the Egyptians and his response to the Israelites. God showed the Egyptians he was Lord, 
through 10 devastating plagues. And finally, by drowning their army in the sea, God shows the Israelites he's Lord by lovingly providing for them in the wilderness, by leading them out of bondage, by promising that he would take them all the way to the promised land. I love how this whole scenario plays out. Moses says, you're not grumbling against me, you're grumbling against God. And then he instructs Aaron, tell all of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, he has heard your grumbling. Okay, you want to grumble before God? Come near God, talk to God. As as I thought about this, I almost expect God to just rain down fire and say, I've had it with you guys, I'm done. But he doesn't. He gathers them together in their grumbling, and he tells them, verse 10 says, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared. God is showing them. This is who I am. I'm God Almighty. See me in all my glory. I'm here with you right now in the wilderness, and this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to be your companion and walk alongside you through this process. And when you eat the food I've provided, when you see that I will do what I said I will do, you will know that I'm the Lord your God. And in doing so, God's showing them fulfillment of that covenant promise that he's made to them. I will be your God, he said, and you will be my people. So God tested them to know their heart, to discipline them, to teach them to trust, to show them he's God. And finally, he did it to help them to remember. Verse 32 of our text, Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it, let an omer of the manna be kept throughout your generation so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Saying, take some of that manna and put it in a jar so you can show it to your descendants and they can show it to their descendants and they can show it to their descendants. The manna was meant to remind the later generation of of God's providence and his care for his people during the testing in the wilderness. It was meant to to point us to, to God as the source of all of life and ultimately to point us to the real manna, the real bread of life, to Jesus. It's to remind them God brought us out of bondage, walked with us through the wilderness, and kept his promise to bring us to the promised land. And we see that they did indeed pass this story down from generation to generation. I want to show you something. In John chapter 6, after Jesus miraculously feeds over 5,000 people with fish and bread, now people begin to take notice. Whoa, this is pretty amazing. This guy just fed thousands of people with a couple fish and some loaves of bread. And so now people are clamoring to follow Jesus. And Jesus said to them in John 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Saying, you just want more food. That's why you're following me. Then he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now, Now they know that Jesus is talking about himself. And so they say, okay, we know that our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. We know that, that they were provided manna in the wilderness. And so see, they've been passing this story along. They know how the story goes. And they say, what kind of sign are you going to do 
to prove to us that you are who you say you are, Jesus. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Obviously, they got the story a little bit wrong. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's relating them back to the wilderness experience when they were without water and they were without food. And their only hope in the wilderness was the providence of God Almighty, and his provision was meant to point us to our only hope in the wilderness, the providence of God Almighty as displayed in the work of Jesus, the work that Jesus has already done to deliver us from bondage, and the work that God continues to do in us as he leads us through the wilderness toward the promised land. The manna was a display of God's love for his chosen people. It was meant to, to draw their hearts to him and to, to show them who he was. The bread taught them to look to God for their deliverance, look to him for their salvation until he sent the true bread from heaven. In John 6, 47 through 51, Jesus is speaking to the people there. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. He says, your fathers ate manna, ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. He's saying that the manna that you're talking about was just physical food, but it was meant to point them to their spiritual need. And then he's talking about himself again. He says, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. They ate the manna and died. It was meant to teach them something that they, would, they needed that, to point us to Jesus and our need for Jesus, the real bread of life. And he says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus, the bread of life, is the ultimate display of God's love. The manna was, was kept to remind the Israelites of all that God had done for them to deliver them from bondage and to lead them through the wilderness into the promised land. And as we look at the manna, it points us to the bread of life, to Jesus who came to this earth and laid down his life on the cross in place of guilty sinners like me, like you. And in Jesus, we see all that God would do for us to deliver us from bondage, to lead us through the wilderness and into the promised land. I want to conclude with this. There's, there's a lot in the story of Exodus that's symbolic. The Egyptian captivity is symbolic of our captivity to sin and idolatry. And we need a deliverer just as they did. And Jesus is that deliverer for us. Crossing over the Red Sea symbolizes deliverance and salvation. And the promised land is representative of our eternal destination, heaven. The wilderness is that in-between place of living out the Christian life. We're free in Jesus, but just like the Israelites, we have to learn through testing how to live like we're free as God leads us to the promised land. And so God graciously guides us through the wilderness, exposing our hearts, disciplining us, showing us who he is, and helping us to grow in our faith and our confidence in him. And I'll end with this. Theologian Philip Graham Riken says, there are many things to learn from the manna and the quail. But the basic lesson is this. God provides for his people, giving us whatever we truly need. And since he is our all-sufficient provider, 
He himself is all we need. We can be completely satisfied in him. Would you join me in prayer? Almighty God, we thank you that all throughout Scripture you have weaved the story of redemption and the good news of salvation. I thank you, Lord, that you, even when the Israelites were in the wilderness, you were pointing us to our need for Jesus Christ, the bread of life, the true deliverer, the one who would stand in our place and take the judgment, the wrath that we deserved and would lay his life down 